Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Idol Australians with James Madison and Osha Ginsberg. Exploring the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture. This is Idol Australians. I'm uh, Osha Ginsberg. That is James Matheson. Very well. It's lockdowns. So lockdowns gone and so long. You had to think about that. I'm a. Uh, oh, God. I don't even know anymore. I almost said I'm James Matheson again. I did that one episode. <laughs> I'm. Whatever. Okay. I'm. Like, do I even. Who cares? I'm in my house, like you, like a couple of other million people in Sydney. We're in our houses (laughs) trying not to die. (laughs) Are you okay? You'd be homeschooling up the wazoo, wouldn't you? Everyone's good. Everyone's good. Homeschooling, working, navigating it all. I mean, obviously... No matter what situation you're in, it's challenging. If you've got kids running everywhere, you're, they're sort of slowly driving you insane. If you're living on your own, mm. the challenges are just unimaginable in terms of that lack of human connection. So, yeah, yeah. everyone's just trying to, I think, taking it day and week at a time. But um, yeah, feel, it feels harder than last time. Definitely. I think last time the whole nation was in lockdown, everyone was like, okay, it's six to eight weeks. We can do this. We'll do it all together. Yeah. And there was a perception at the back of our heads, once this is done, we can go back to normal. Uh-huh. Everything will be fine. But this feels very different. This feels like, okay, we're done, you know, four or five weeks. Okay, we're going to do another four or five weeks, you know. Maybe we'll have to do another four or five weeks. That drip feeding of it, and I know Melbourne had it in a very similar way and people were commenting how that takes a a special type of toll Mm. when the end is so nebulous that you can't really mentally prepare for when it's going to be over. For me, it's very much, uh, it's added with this feeling of that, you know, mum and dad haven't got the wheel. You know, you look to the nation's leaders and A, they're either nowhere to be seen or B, are obfuscating responsibility or any kind of semblance of a, here's where it's going to be okay, stick with it, it's going to be fine, I've got this. Like that isn't existing and it's coming down to various state and other leaders to go, we're doing the best we can, we'll see you tomorrow. And it makes you feel like, well, hang on, who's, how is, what, what's the plan? Because if you've got a plan, and most people can get through most things, but if there's no plan and no end, it's like that's just going to make thing people freak out, you know? Mm. This is the end result of being infantilized for a long time from our government, treating us like children, talking to us like idiots, we, which is generally what they do because everything has to be about narrative control. So they can never be honest and straightforward with us because everything has to go through the filter of how is this going to be perceived, what will my opponent say, how will this poll, where will this leave me 
in terms of my standing for the next election cycle. And so if that's the lens in which you look at everything through, you can never really be honest with your electorate. And so you get to a point where the, the reality is all they needed to have said is, look, this is unprecedented. We're going to try this. Hopefully it works. Understand we've never done this before, but we've got some concrete steps which we think we're going to do. And we, we saw this recently from um, the Israeli government. Um, I mean, in, in some ways the German government, they were very clear and direct with their populace. Some of the thinking behind the directions they were taking is questionable, but at least they spoke to their electorate like adults, they outlay the case of where they thought they needed to go and what they needed to put in place and, you know, you live and die by that. Whereas we have been presented with a situation where everything is spin, everything is put into language that they can never be nailed down to so they won't commit to something and now we're in a hole. Now we're in this hole of like what do we do here? We didn't go fast enough in New South Wales partly because when they went hard and fast in Victoria, they saw the blowback from the media and and politically. And so if we're at a point where health outcomes are dictated by how a focus group feels about it, we're so fucked. We are so fucked. And it's it's really disappointing because everyone you speak to feels like, we know we're not being told the truth straight up, yet it does. They don't change tack. It's, it's really disheartening, and I think we'd be yeah. all in a lot better place. Just like you were saying, if there was a well-articulated plan that didn't involve all this political speak and double speak and gaslighting. But yeah, I mean, if anyone who's paid any attention to Australian politics for the next, last 20 years knows that we, if you want that to happen, don't hold your breath because you're going to pass out. I don't agree with what happened last week in, in Sydney. We're recording this the week after a bunch of people took to the streets. But I understand in the absence of no one sounding like they've got any idea of what's going on, People will cling to anyone that sounds like they've got an idea of what's going on, regardless of whether that reflects reality or not. So I I don't agree with it, but I get it. Totally, totally. There is a middle ground between like absolute complete compliance to the vision of leaders who feel like they're inept. There's a middle ground between there and punching a horse. Some Can we just be somewhere in between those two extremes? That's all we're asking for. It's all we're, It's not it's much. Not, it's not much. It's not much to ask. We're a nation of adults. We we able to, we we can be trusted with this responsibility. We're gonna be fine. Tricky time to be a young person. That's for sure. You've got young kids. I've got an older kid and a younger kid. Very tricky time. She's going. G's going through her HSC. You know, it's the year of no birthdays. It's a year of, like, the other day, one of her mates turned 18. Like, in Queensland, we didn't turn 18 until after high school. In New South Wales, you turned 18 during high school. So one of her mates turned 18 the other day. So to celebrate their 18th, the girls, they all borrowed the cars because they've all got their peas, and they did a, a a drive-by convoy where they were just all shouting out the window, happy birthday to their friend. I don't know how many cars. There must have been 10, 20 cars, all driving past their friend's house, and she stood in her front yard and waved. All right, for her, but that's her eighteenth. That's what her eighteenth looks like. Yeah, I mean, for for an eighteen year old, 
and their birthday. That isn't people just driving past and not stopping and not talking to them or, or not having to really interact for the 18th birthday is an absolute nightmare. For me at 43, that isn't a dream. <laughs> that is my absolute <laughs> fantasy <laughs> oh, for my birthday. It'll be over in no five minutes. No one talks to me. <laughs> no one gives me anything. There's no drinking. People just drive past and wave and it's over. So... Swings and roundabouts, really? I think you just described my 50th. It's coming up in three years and I can't wait for it. I'm just going to get people to do that. Just drive past me or just have a Zoom call when everyone's on mute. (laughs) (laughs) What you should do do is just record like 100 messages for everyone you know and at like 4 a.m. in the morning, shoot them out to people. <laughs> Say, hey, <laughs> just preempting. It's my birthday. You're really important to me in my life. I'm thinking of you on my birthday and just blast it out, turn the phone off. It's done. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> that's, that's the dream birthday for me and you. But when you're a younger kid, Anywhere between, I don't know, about what point do you start to get right into birthday cakes? Probably two, three? Yep, two or three. I mean, at at three, you're sort of becoming cognizant and aware of parties that they're about you and then the the toys and the presents and Mm -hmm. the the cake and all the accoutrement that comes with that. That that kicks in about three and... Yeah, the cake is is such a big thing, definitely. It's probably and there's that sets off like a good fifteen years of this is the moment. It's the moment either signals the time when everyone grabs their keys and goes, or the moment when the speech happens later on as you get older, or the moment where you get to the song gets sung and everyone's looking at you. It's either gonna feel really good or really cringy. There's a candle being blown out, there's definitely a photo gonna get taken. It's the pinnacle moment of your party. Absolutely. You you, you wanna get the cake. Right, and these days it's ever more difficult with, you know, nut allergies and celiacs and dairy-free. But in many ways it's a lot easier than it ever has been because you can go online and there are millions of websites that will give you instructions on how to make a kid's cake. There's dedicated YouTube channels, there's Instagram feeds. You are never short of inspiration, of ideas, of ways to come up with something really, really special. But it wasn't always that way. Absolutely not. And it was, I believe, in around 1980, some 41 years ago, that the Australian Women's Weekly published what at the time was a battle to release, the Australian Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake Book. came out in 1980. You've probably seen it. It's probably in your mum's or your grandma's house. It's got a red train cake on the cover. Uh, It had 106 original recipes in it. And it has since gone on to sell millions of copies all around the world. And it changed baking in Australia forever. I, there would be, I'm going to say it right now, Jimmy. There would be no Adriano Zumbo without the Australian Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake book. Without that duck with the Smith's Chips bill. He's nothing. Nothing. Zumbo's nothing. Zero. Without the duck. No. Yeah, I mean, the, the train on the front, that... Duck with the crisp lips, the pirate cake, the swimming pool cake. Yep, I had the swimming. I remember the swimming pool cake. You know, the koala cake, the ladybug cake, 
there were so many just incredibly iconic creations. Humpty Dumpty, oh, my God, of course. There's not a kid, I reckon, who grew up in the 80s who didn't either have one or go to a party that involved a cake from the Woman's Weekly Children's Cake Cookbook, an absolute integral part of Australia's culinary past and a big part of a lot of people's childhoods as well. And still to this very day, people still bake cakes from it. There was a charity event in Canberra not long ago where they actually organised a bunch of people to try and bake every single cake in the book at the same time. There was 106 people baking these 106 classic, classic cakes. This book is in our house right now. It's been passed down somehow. It ended up here as well. So there would be, it's the kind of book you see on the shelf of the Airbnb or the, you know, the beach house in Stratty Island. It'll be there. But we actually have the woman that created the Australian Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake book joining us today. She's the former food editor of the Australian Women's Weekly. She's written over 400 cookbooks for Women's Weekly. She's no longer in the Australian Women's Weekly test kitchen, but she is on this Zoom call with me and Jimmy. Please say hello to Pamela Clark. Hey, Pamela. Hello, Osha. Pamela, when when did your real interest in, I guess, baking and cakes themselves begin? How early did that start? When I was about 10 or 11. Goes back Helping a out. long way. <laughs> Helping out mum in the kitchen or you just sort of were pottering around and just, yeah, she got you involved? Yeah, a bit of that. When I hit um, high school and I did home science, called home science then, and the teacher that I had was mad about baking and it was quite infectious really. So you couldn't stop me from then on really. I don't know what it is about baking, but I enjoy watching the process. I'm celiac, so I can't eat cake, well, most cakes, but I love watching those shows with my wife. I just love the idea of, of the process of it and then the wait and see. What is it that you love about it? I love it all. I think over the years I've kind of developed a liking for the chemistry of it. Now, I know that sounds a bit clinical, but it really is quite sciencey and quite chemistry-ish. I, when I was in the test kitchen and a cake would go wrong, I used to love to look at it and think, now, if you did this and you did that, you did the other thing, you can improve it, you know, you can make it finer, coarser, whatever you want, just by tweaking. It's great fun. You're essentially making an edible foam. It is, it, and the sizes <laughs> of the, it is, you know. <laughs> Not all cakes are foamy. No, but it's the bubbles inside, you know, that. Oh, that- I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And you're, you're looking at, at how you can change those chemical reactions to either increase. I love the idea of that. That's fascinating. It is. It's good fun. You mentioned the test kitchen. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about that because we're really at the heart of what we want to get to is, you know, of course, the Women's Weekly Children Cake Cookbook. But what happens in the, in the test kitchen and how much happens there before we even see some recipes put down in print? A lot of stuff happens, a lot of chat, a lot of talk, discussion, (laughs) testing, eating, retesting, more eating, and finally photography. So it, it goes on and on. It's quite a procedure to get the recipes absolutely right. You know, it's a credit to the teams that have worked there over the years that um, the Weekly's got this great reputation for recipes that actually work. 
What didn't make the cut? What were ones that were sort of borderline or ones that someone in the team was rooting for that were just like, nah, we're not, it's not going in? You know, it's always the dreaded three-dimensional cakes that pull you up short. I can't remember how many times I tried to make a dog cake or a horse cake, a horse head, and it was just, they were just gross, gross. They really were. The, you know, they just ended up in the bin. But when you can do cutout cakes, you know, you cut out a, almost a caricature of a rabbit or a cat or something, they're pretty easy really. Vehicles are awful. I'm, I'm including the rocket cake and the helicopter cake and the, not to mention the hateful tip truck cake. <laughs> Those three-dimensional things are horrible. Over the course of your uh, incredible career, you worked in the test kitchen for uh, around 40 years. I started there in 1969 and I theoretically left in 2019, so that's 50 years. Wow. I started off in the test kitchen and then went into the office part, if you like. In some ways you are almost like an op-ed columnist. You are kind of dictating an opinion of this is what a birthday cake should be, but it also you will be responsive to the readers. What, what did you notice changing over the years that was really obvious to you? In terms of kids' cakes? Mm. You know what? Not much has changed. It staggers me to think that that very, very daggy cookbook, the children's birthday cake book, is so loved by at least three generations now. Whoever you mention that book to, they say, oh, I had that a cake out of that when I was four or six or I made it for my granddaughter and my daughter, and so it goes on. But that book and those daggy cakes are still much loved. After we did that book, many years later, we did a lot of other children's birthday cake books. And I reckon if you added all those other books together, they wouldn't come anywhere near the number of books that we printed, the children's birthday cake book. Nowhere near it. So I don't think that much has changed. It wasn't an overnight success, though, was it? It was pretty well received overseas, particularly in the UK and Canada at that time and South Africa, and Australia lagged behind in the sales. And, of course, it's all about the sales, as you'd imagine. And we're all despondent, particularly me, because I, was, I fought so hard to get that book done. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe nobody buys a book till they have a child who has a birthday. And Maybe I was right, maybe I wasn't, but it lagged well behind. And then suddenly it started to take off and people started talking about it and particularly uh, the swimming pool cake and the Dolly Varden cake and, the, of course, the book was always called the book with the train on the cover. Um, so that cake and the duck with the crisps for the bill they started talking about them and they and you started seeing them at kids' parties. It's amazing, really, how long it's lasted. Because the, the kind of baking you're talking about, I mean, it's the sort of thing that if you're not baking all the time, you might only bake two or three times a year, you know, birthdays, Christmas, yes. maybe someone else's birthday, right? So 
to make the kids' birthday cake, it, it could be overwhelming. It could be I have no idea how complicated this is going to be. Is it because the when you look at the photographs, it's it's now we live in this Instagram world of food stylists and everything's perfect, and there's air blowers and lacquers and varnishes that people use to make things look more shiny. Yours literally looks like it was like taken with a Polaroid and then printed. Just about was. We used to make those cakes. We the kids in the test kitchen. We used to make them on the benches that we worked from. So it was a laminated bench. We didn't put them on a board or anything or a plate, nothing. They were done straight onto the bench top itself. And that was because we could move around, we could do other things while, you know, we were thinking about what to do with the cakes. And they were never meant to be eaten, even though they were all made from cake, absolutely every one of them. Uh, Packet cake, though, we did that for consistency. We'd say to our boss, you know, well, what do you think of this idea? And she had no idea about cakes, except she knew what she liked. And so she'd say, oh, let's let's shoot it, little darling. So she'd drag in some poor photographer and with his lights and he just took a happy snap, basically, of that cake. And that's what you see in the book. No styling, no, no none of your lacquer, nothing. But that look gives it the idea that it's it's achievable. It's within reach for the just the average punter. Yes, that's its gift, I think. I'm pretty sure I was six, uh, the cricket bat. Okay. I did that one. Did you? <laughs> That's so amazing. And you know what? Um, um, and at eight, I think I had the eight. Uh, it's like a racetrack. Yes, eight. I did that one too. Oh, my God. <laughs> so and I did crazy. most of the sporty type cakes in that book, including all those fields, masses of green coconut, buckets of green coconut. I looked at it very hard this morning and, and thought, gee, you know, I know nothing about football. <laughs> <laughs> And then when you think about that, what, what does it feel like or, or, or what comes to when you think about how much joy that these recipes have given kids? Because I remember looking through the book and, and dog-earing some of the corners and showing it to mum and, and then she eventually made it. And then the morning or the afternoon of your party when it's wheeled out, you must know how much joy that has brought to young children and adults around the country. What's that like? It's the most special feeling really, isn't it? It makes you come over all warm and fuzzy. I've seen the look on kids' cakes uh, so many times. You know, when my, my son was growing up, I'd take him to parties and I'd look at the, at the cakes and I, most of the time they came out of that book. I'd be looking at the kid whose you know, birthday cake it was and, and that look is just something special, really is. And, of course, my granddaughters, I've made them cakes, well, one's 18 next week and I've, I've got a bit of a challenge ahead of me. I'm making her a, a cake from um, Alice in Wonderland, a rabbit, the white rabbit. Mm. <laughs> Never done that before but... I'll give it a go. <laughs> you are the secret weapon in the back pocket in your family, Pamela. Oh, yes. I still love it. It's funny you mentioned that, Jimmy. I remember now you mentioned the cricket bat cake. I remember 1982, a bunch of cricket bat cakes when I changed schools and I got invited to some birthday parties. I absolutely 100% remember that. Did people, um, were they proud of their creations? Did they either contact you or let you know how it went and, and take photos of their kids' faces when the cake is unveiled? Yes, we used to get a lot of 
uh, photographs in the mail, back when you got mail, with cakes taken mostly with Polaroid cameras. Most of the time, their efforts were pretty, pretty good, you know, and it's the scare factor that's lacking in that book, and that's what I'm sure makes it so pleasing for people. There's something really uh, magical and supportive mostly when people are trying to bake. I don't know if you've seen this show. I think it's on Netflix. It's called Nailed It. Basically, amateur bakers, people like Osh and I at home participate in this show where a baker shows them extraordinarily intricate cake and then without really any instructions, they're given about an hour to try and recreate it now. The results, the results are always terrible. But there's something really engaging and gorgeous about the show because everyone watching has that sensation, oh, my God, I know what it's like to attempt a cake and for it to absolutely go completely pear-shaped. Like there's a real shared valuable experience that we all have attempting cakes and then getting them wrong. And usually you can still eat it. That's the upside. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no shame. No one, no one ever ruins a cake and goes, oh, God, I'm terrible. Oh, God, I've made a meal of that. There, there, there's a real humour around the attempt, it feels like. Yes. Yeah, nobody really cares if it's sunk in the middle or yeah. it's broken when it comes out of the cake pan or whatever. You're right. I hadn't really thought about that before, but you're right. The, the dark side of that, I wonder, is if when it was at the peak of its popularity and lots of kids were having cakes made, did there become sort of this um, housewife competitiveness that snuck in to the cake making? Oh, yes, definitely. I used to observe uh, the mother's faces, you know, and the first thing they do be carefully looking at the cake. That would be the very first thing that they'd want to see. And, you know, you'd hear them whispering and muttering about the, about the cakes. <laughs> very amusing. What I adore about the recipes is that, you know, my, my wife, Audrey, she, she loves the baking TV show and, and I love to watch them. And, they, and you even see it on MasterChef every now and again, the adornments of the cake, they have to be made separately as a part of the recipe. But with, in your books, it was like, grab a pack of Smarties, whack them on. You know, it was just like, what's something you can get from the corner shop and stick in the icing? That'll do. I love the idea of using the found object yes. <laughs> in the cake. Well, that was what we intended to do. We only wanted things that you could readily buy. There are a few exceptions, and as time went on, we thought we'd run out of ideas. We did go a bit over the top, I think. But that book, we tried really hard to just use very, very ordinary ingredients and as much edible as we could. You know, there are a few spiderlings made out of um, pipe cleaners and things like that, but by and large, most of the stuff or most of the decorations on the cakes is edible. Wasn't there a um, like a a kitchenette, like a stove cook uh, cove cake that had like bacon and eggs on it, or sausages and eggs? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I did that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, it looks delicious, but 
<laughs> Worse, I did the kidney-shaped dressing table cake. What were those little sausages made out of on the frying pan of no, the I've got the- a feeling they were bullets. I can't remember. Right. I have to look right. back at I think they were probably bullets. Oh, my gosh. There's so much joy flicking through that book. <laughs> oh, when I was flicking through it, you know, I, all the memories kept flooding back and um, the funny things that happened when we were doing the cake, particularly I think one of the duck, which wasn't one of my cakes, the, the dreaded bill for the duck, there was a lot of discussion about the, using crisps for the, be- mm. the bill because it was savoury and sweet, shock horror, you know. And um, some were for and some were against. I do remember that. It was very amusing. When did we decide that a cake is a thing that has to happen at a birthday? When did that come from? I don't know. It's like as long as, as, long as I've remembered. I wonder what. Yeah. And the candle blowing out and all this. Where did, I wonder how that. wonder how that began. But it is such that pinnacle point, you know, if, particularly when the kids are little. It's like, okay, we have to stay. Just make it to the cake. Make it to the cake. Yeah. <laughs> if there are lollies involved, of course, their little hands are diving into the cake before the mm. candles are even lit. You mentioned earlier that it wasn't always a, it wasn't an overnight success. It took a slow burn. But now it really is part of our pop cultural history. You know, there's songs about the train cake. You know, there's articles written about it. There's been profiles on you. At what point did you realise, okay, this isn't, just a cake book anymore like this has become part of the nation's history of our of our cultural consciousness let me go back a bit for you in 2001 it was decided by these senior people in the company then acp we'd let the book go out of print and i was horrified anyway we got hundreds maybe thousands who counts of phone calls and letters, bring back the cake, <laughs> the train on the cover. And it went on for 10 years and we didn't have wow. that walk in the marketplace. And the argument was that from a marketing point of view, if people bought that book, they wouldn't buy the other birthday cake books we were doing. And my argument was, well, maybe if they bought that book, they would then see how wonderful all our other books were and buy them as well. But anyway, I lost that battle for 10 years. But with nagging, I won in the end and it went back back into print on, in 2011. The company keeps it in print all the time now. You mentioned hearing about people overseas that accessed the book. I, I distinctly remember when um, I have travelled and people I saw, do you need anything from Australia? Like, yes, get me this birthday cake book. There was a, a pastry chef actually from overseas. A pastry chef demanded that that's the thing that I bring her yeah. was the Australian Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake Book yes. because it is just internationally is seen as this. This is where we start from. This is yes. where we go. How far away did you hear of your cakes being made? Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> I I saw it in Iceland on sale. You were in Iceland. No. I was. I could not believe my eyes. So, so you're wandering, say, the streets of Reykjavik, and, and what happens? Yes, it was, um, uh, I think it was actually at the airport that I saw it on sale. I was blown away by that. But we used to get letters from all over the world about the cookbooks. 
all sorts of things saying how wonderful they were or why couldn't, what was this peculiar ingredient. I mean, Kofa used to cause us no end of grief. We were the only, only country in the world that had Kofa and, and there were a few substitutes, but they were very hard to get. And that was one of the main ingredients that used to cause us grief. Yeah, right. So what do they use instead of Kofa around the world? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know. Don't care. Not my problem, Jimmy. That's that's not my problem anymore. Not my problem. Well, what can you do, you know, if you can't get Kofa? We ended up simply not using it anymore as an ingredient. Chocolate crackle without Kofa. So we went to white chocolate instead. Oh. Oh, there goes our little side hustle of importing and exporting copra on the black market. <laughs> what would you suggest to people who aren't that great at baking, if they wanted to just to, to whack one up that was pretty easy and straightforward, what would you say is the, the simplest win that they can um, pull out of that book? If they made a cake, they make it in a 20-centimetre round cake pan or buy a 20-centimetre round cake or buy a square slab of cake and cut it into a shape that you like. Put some icing on it. You can buy frosting in tubs, put some icing on it and go mad with the lollies and the kids will love it. Oh, sorry. I mean, I mean, out, out of that cookbook, if someone didn't have a lot of experience, what would you suggest to get a, a really easy win? Hmm, hard question. Go for the numbers. That's always a sure bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if the child is four, do a number do a number four and make it pretty boyish, girlish, whatever. What I do love is is you, who is the food editor at Women's Weekly, who has written over four hundred cookbooks. When Jimmy asks you that question, the first thing you say is, Go and buy some just go buy some sponge cake and a tub of icing. Don't even <laughs> bake it. Well, but what you're talking about, Pamela, is like you're describing just make the thing so it can be there. That's what's more important for you, right? Yes, exactly. And you know what? It's not the texture of the cake or the flavour of the cake that the kid loves. It's just that impact when they see it, you know, no matter what it represents to them, whether it's the cat or the dog or whatever it is, it's the lovely warmth and love and everything good that's gone into that cake and that's what the kid responds to for sure. It's a part of history now, Pamela, and in many ways so are you. I know that that wasn't probably the plan when you started out, but um, it really has become a really key part of, you know, our culinary sense as a nation. So we love having you on today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. What a delight. And honestly, I absolutely love that even this person whose whole business model, her entire career has been you need to cook something, said no, no, fuck it, just get the sponge cake, whack some pre-made icing on it. It's just make the thing and have the moment. That's what is important. Yeah. I love that. I love that about her. Yeah, I think we forget that sometimes as parents. We try and do too much. It's like kids just want these little simple pleasures. There is joy in that for them. But there's also joy in the the idea that people listening to this will be like, I had the swimming pool cake as well. I had the cricket bat cake for all the incredible magic that exists on the internet with cookbooks and recipes and your ability to come up with anything you want or research anything you want or find inspiration for any cake you want, we've lost and we're losing that 
shared experience, you know. My kids aren't going to go in 30 years' time, oh, I had this cake and someone will go, I had that cake as well, you know, because we're all atomized, we're all separated, we're all experiencing our own little streams of, of culture and less and less. And that's happening not just with kids' cakes, that's happening with music, you know, yeah. it's happening with film, it's happening with what we read. As the amount of choice, which is wonderful and amazing, gets greater and greater, that shared experience, that ability to relate to each other through common ground, either artistically or culinarily, is starting to be chipped away. And I wonder, I wonder if the trade-off you know, is always worth it. I couldn't agree more. I think it's really important to have those moments, those shared cultural moments to connect with a stranger about. Luckily, we still have sport, uh, if sport's your thing. Uh, But luckily, we still have sport where you can still say, oh, where were you when uh, Ariana Titmus won that swimming race? Uh, You'll at least have maybe a frame of reference for that. But the idea of what we shared before, I remember the cricket bat birthday cake. And I don't think that, I don't know, unless we subscribe to similar algorithms, I don't think we'll ever have that again, uh, which is a real shame. <laughs> but even the, alg- even the algorithms are tailored specifically to me. I that's, mean, what, that's what I'm I saying. reckon yeah. if I could think of my partner or my closest friend and went through their Google search history or went through what Google suggests for them, it will be wildly different to what it yeah. suggests for me. And so no matter how close you are to someone and no matter how intimate that connection is, your experience online is so bespoke now that, yeah, there, there is an atomization of, of the shared experience. There's this amazing book. I, I don't know if it's still in print. I read it a few years ago by um, Barbara Enreich and it's called – uh, Dancing in the Streets. It's a book about the, the history of uh, collective experience and how much joy there is in that and how it's been a big part of all cultures throughout time. And so I just hope that as we find our own thing and our own niche, we at the same time remember how important that joy and connection is when, when we share things in a community and even within a culture. It's wild because we're all sitting here locked down and I, you know, I remember what it's like to stand at a gig with, you know, 5,000 strangers, one of them you know because you came with them, and being breathed on and sweated on and accidentally spat on by all those people while you all sing a song and you're looking and there's 500 people around you who also all know the words to this song, the mm. seventh track on the CD that you didn't think anybody else knew. And you're like, oh, all right, here we all are. I'm not alone. And that feeling exactly. is a really important one. And I would, for one, like to go back to a place where I can, you know, go and see a gig. As long as the gig starts at a reasonable hour, maybe 2 or 3 p.m. <laughs> would be nice. Um, oh, my God. I, I am literally in bed <laughs> at about 7.45 these days. That is not an exaggeration. Oh, I'm the same, man. Don't even worry. <laughs> it's <laughs> happened. <laughs> it's fine. I don't know. I think Chris Rock said it really good. So don't, you don't want to be the old guy in the club. You never want to be the old guy in the club. Hmm. At the same time, though, if you can find a rocking gig that starts at 3 p.m., yeah. sign me up! <laughs> I'm absolutely there. And I, sir, I will bake 
the number eight cake for you. I will bake that for you again. Maybe I'll bake that on your 48th. How about that? I'll bake you a four and an eight. Careful what you promise, Osh. <laughs> Careful what you promise. I've got six years to figure it out. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening. As always, if you've got any ideas that uh, you want us to explore on Idle Australians, get in touch with us, idleaustralians at gmail.com. I'm James Matheson. He's I'm Osh Ginsburg. We were produced by Bree Steele. Audio production was by Darren Mislin. Music was by Toe Hider. If you like the show, tell a friend. This is the best thing you can possibly do for us. See you next week. Bye, calm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.